Hi, you are listening to Mixtapes from America, a storytelling podcast in which sounds and stories are used to make sense of life in the United States. I am your host, Lina Zhigelita. Schools will not be the same in the upcoming academic year. Regardless of how education will look in the fall, because of the pandemic, so much might be on the line. The future of degrees, as we know them, the already fraught tenure track system in higher education, state funding slashed to K-12 schools due to recession, and the likelihood of foreign students coming to the U.S. Add to this list the anti-racist protests which have taken over the country since May 2020. So here's the question which inspired today's episode. What can education do in the era of Black Lives Matter? This question already came up in the previous episode. Do check out my conversation with the Netherlands-based writer Elliot Lyons. In this episode, we dive deeper and to make the scope manageable, we look at elementary schools. One of our guides in this journey will be Mary Kokinda, an educator based in western New York. This area is known for some of the best schools in the region and also for some of the most economically segregated school districts in the country. But first, let's go back in time. Nineteen sixty eight a third-grade class at a public school in Iowa. A teacher, a white woman, stands in front of a class with about a dozen students. Most of them appear to be white. The class is much smaller than average elementary school classes today. The teacher asks her students if there are any people in the United States we do not treat as equals. United States. We do not treat as our brothers. Yes. Who? Yes. The, black yes. people. the black people. Who else? Indians. Absolutely, the Indians. And when yes. you see, when many people see a black person or a yellow person or a red person, what do they think? Uh, oh, yeah. look at that. Dumb people. Yeah, look at the dumb people. What else do they think? Several days before this class, Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated. The teacher in the video footage is Jane Elliott, an educator best known as the person behind the blue eyes, brown eyes exercise. This exercise is used to this day to teach about racism. One of the most famous implementations of this exercise took place on Oprah's talk show in 1992. That episode was aired just weeks after federal troops rolled into L.A., That year, the acquittal of four police officers in the beating of Rodney King ended up in unprecedented riots and federal troops, along with the National Guard, were used against American citizens. Today, an average elementary school class in Iowa where Jane Elliott taught looks different. It has almost twice as many students and the students are more diverse. Only about two-thirds of the class is white, with the rest being Hispanic, Black, Asian, Indigenous, or students of mixed racial and ethnic background. 
Fast forward one more generation and by 2050 we will live in America in which white people will no longer be the majority for the first time in this nation's history. This projected demographic shift is the source of many current racial anxieties. So how do schools prepare students for this future? What do students answer today when teachers ask them if in the United States of America all people are being treated equally? And uh, how do teachers in 2020 broach any conversations about race, racism or anti-racism? Well, my name is Mary Kokinda. Um, and I like to just call myself an educator because I don't feel like um, my mindset is just about, you know, elementary teaching or a specific grade level or anything like that encompasses the idea that, you know, we're learners um, as well. I'm certified in New York State for both um, general classroom teaching and special education classroom teaching in grades one through six. Generally, that would be ages six through 12. I am in year 15 of teaching. I have worked in the city district of Rochester, as well as a private school district in the Rochester area. And then um, I've been primarily in, you know, one affluent suburban district for about 11 years now, but I've also had experience working in three or four other suburban districts as a long-term substitute. I also live in a neighborhood where the majority of my neighbors are teachers in different districts. I don't know, I think teachers find each other. <laughs> and, you know, and we like to connect and um, kind of support each other. So I hear about different places um, for that reason too. My undergraduate degree is in English and film. It's not in education. And then I had a variety of jobs before I went back for a master's degree in inclusive education at the University of Rochester. I think teacher programs vary greatly. And I think people who go straight to undergrad programs out of high school for teaching get a very different background you know, as, as a human and in their own education, when you just go to an undergrad program for four years for teaching and then you jump right out of that into the teaching world, um, it's just you're bringing a very different set of experiences and knowledge into your career and into your profession. Like myself, Mary lives in Rochester, New York. Unlike her, I have never been to an American K-12 school. I mean an actual building. I did not grow up in the U.S. and I do not have children of my own. My sister's kids grew up in Ireland. So unlike my generation of Americans, I never had to go to a school with police officers in it or lounging in their cars next to the entrance to my school building. The idea of metal detectors and drills to the evacuation of building in the case of an active shooter are not my frame of reference at all. So I asked Mary to paint me a picture of an average school day in the life of her students. Our kids in my building Some students might be dropped off by their parents half an hour or so before most of the students enter the building at around 8.30. 
The students might do the Pledge of Allegiance. In the building where Mary works, it is not enforced and left up to the teachers. For students, the day ends by around 3.05. And then some might go to childcare. Monday through Friday, the routine is more or less the same. I literally have tiles falling off the wall in my classroom. Um, I, there are still chalkboards in my building instead of whiteboards or anything else. We are not a district where we have one-to-one -one devices in kids' hands. We don't have enough devices for every child to have one. There are definitely things where um, you might assume certain suburban districts have. You know how many people assume that we have air conditioning in schools? <laughs> <laughs> right? We don't have air conditioning. No, there's no, you know, there's no air conditioning. There's one window in the whole room that even opens to a screen because of fire codes. You know, you can't even make a breeze. And yet, you know, two or three months out of the year, you're working in a room that's like 80 degrees. Once classes are over, Mary's day as a teacher does not end. Emails to parents follow. Responses to parents follow. The pandemic brought new challenges. While New York Teachers Union makes job security less of a concern for tenured teachers like Mary, right now she and her colleagues are very concerned about larger infrastructural issues like access to faster internet for which teachers have been paying out of their pocket. In the past few years, there's been a very big movement for teachers to find their own resources. There's a website called Teachers Pay Teachers and people everywhere are buying things from it all the time, which I don't know if people realize, but that is, you know, a teacher's own money being spent all the time to buy things that <laughs> that they don't feel like the, the resources your district provides are doing a good enough job. One of the other things I'm, con I'm concerned about in the next year or two in education is the level of online activity that's expected because one thing I do think that matters is like Wi-Fi connectivity, right? Access to the internet. That issue is huge. But I can also tell you, I have teacher friends who, while we were teaching from home, they paid to upgrade their services because we have to teach from home online. In, in other industries, people were also working from home and going online. But, you know, we're all paying for the service to be able to be online from home. I find that very interesting. I think that there are many upper level professionals who would not be paying out of their own pocket in order to have technology at home that they could use for their job. They would think that's crazy. That's what we're all doing. We're all still spending our own money from home to have computers and internet access to do our jobs, which are government funded jobs. Having spent a year with her class, Mary moves on to a new group of students. That's it. Have one year to make a difference. Yep, yep. <laughs> this June, the actress Kerry Washington spoke on Jimmy Kimmel about teaching American children and teaching them specifically about race. Here's what she said. Kids are introduced to race at Black History Month or in the context of change makers like Martin Luther King Jr. and Rosa Parks. And I think it's really important that we start to introduce the idea of race 
with a black history that begins before teaching kids about what black people were told they couldn't do, right? So there's Maasai warriors and the kingdoms of Ghana and Queen Nefertiti. I can't help but notice how Kerry Washington's idea relies on a very global understanding of complicated issues like race. For some contrast, listen to the current New York State Learning Standards, a section on social sciences. It is the dominant subject under which students encounter topics on race and ethnicity. What follows is from the section on individual development and cultural identity. Explore significant individuals, historical events, and symbols that are important to American culture explains when and why we celebrate national holidays such as Labor Day. Understand the purpose and general meaning of the Pledge of Allegiance sings patriotic songs. For example, America the Beautiful, Star Spangled Banner, and begins to understand the general meaning of the lyric. This May, many white Americans started doing something which looked like they were caught off guard. Protests after the killing of George Floyd in police custody exploded into a national and later a transnational anti-racist movement. At the time of this recording, the lists of best-selling books looked like nothing before. Just listen to the titles from the New York Times bestseller list. White Fragility, How to Be an Anti-Racist, so you want to talk about race, me and white supremacy, the new Jim Crow. These are just some of the titles in the top 15. Here's what Mary had to say about this spike in white America's desire to self-educate on race and some of the differences we should consider between adults and children learning today about race. When things first started occurring a few weeks back, uh, the first weekend, a lot of the protests um, started. One of the best things that happened for me was that weekend, one of the moms of my students emailed me and said, I am heartbroken and trying to figure out what to do. Can you recommend some books that I can have my child read? And it immediately gave me a sense of like, okay, there's something I can do here. I can send a list of, you know, book titles to the parents of my students, which I, of course, did right away. What I shared, though, I did not share books like, you know, How to Be Anti-Racist or that kind of thing. I shared historical fiction um, and, you know, and even realistic fiction, stories that I would normally read with my students that just make you open your eyes. Um, through the stories. It was really nice that, you know, a handful of parents wrote back and said, thank you. Um, and that they were eager to, I, you know, eager to use some of those texts or look at them. And I recommended that, you know, read these books with your child because they're great stories for any age. And they're the type of things you should be talking through with your kid also in order for them to get the lesson that you hope they get out of it which is what I would normally do in the classroom if we're, we were reading together. I think that in schools, in my district, we've been talking about some of the titles that are popular all of a sudden right now for the past few years. And it's been definitely social emotional learning along with anti-racism has been a topic that's been bubbling up in the public school system for the past few years. Some schools make 
book study groups or sometimes administration asks everybody to read the same book. Some of those books and other types of books too, just around social emotional learning or inclusivity or diversity in the workplace um, are being used. And I think the use of books makes a lot of sense, right? Because it's something where you can work on work on it together. And we're basically searching for replacements for all the books that we were shown growing up that were, you know, very, very single storied, um, narrow views of life and history and reality. As a gay woman, as a gay teacher, sometimes I would read these texts and be like, I'm familiar with certain aspects of what these books are talking about. And it would actually astonish me that some of my colleagues had never considered other perspectives other than their own. What I started realizing is that my own background, not only my own life experience, but my actual college and my undergrad and graduate education led me to already be exposed to many different materials um, that had to do with social justice and just diversity in the world. I think having a college education can change a person's uh, knowledge and just perspective and you know mindset and the, the, the lens we look at the world through. But I also feel like we shouldn't need a college education in order to have <laughs> have that knowledge at all. So, I appreciate how people are turning to books right now. I wish that, I actually wish that we were using those stories and those books earlier so that people were growing up with all of these pieces of information and these um, perspectives. Because I think that for a lot of adults, what they need to do is right now provide themselves with that education. And this is really the only way to do it. A lot of people just don't live in a diverse, especially in the area where we live here, you know, people do not live in diverse neighborhoods. And even though they may be completely open to being anti-racist, um, embracing diversity, being inclusive, it's, a, it's not the experience they're living. I learned more about African-Americans. I learned that whites didn't treat them as equals. I learned about how Frederick Douglass helped our world so much. I learned about how slaves are not able to know how to read or write. I learned that whites just go to jail, but African Americans get seriously hurt. I learned that this was all not so long ago. What I just read are some of the reflections Mary's students wrote after reading a 2007 children's novel by Christopher Curtis called Elijah of Buxton. The novel is about a black boy born in Canada in a refugee camp for black slaves who escaped slavery. Mary is happy that her students read the book before anti-racist protests took over the U.S. this summer. We have some friends who have very young children. They have like five-year-olds. And they're amazing parents. They're already wanting to talk to their children about this stuff and have make sure their kids have the right books in their hands or on their bookshelf. And, you know, but one of my messages to them has been, you don't have, you're not undoing anything with a very young child. We have to undo the work that has been done to us. We have to undo our mindset and our habits and our awareness 
But with, with younger children, I can tell you for sure, because I teach, I've been teaching nine and 10 year olds, you know, 11 year olds for the past few years, that when those kids hear stories of the way things used to be, they are shocked. Their mindset is not the same as ours. They don't even realize, you know, how awful things can be. So they're kind of walking into the world with a bit of a fresh perspective. They, of course, should be aware of the way things were so that they don't repeat history and that they understand how far we've come. But there's, I think there's going to be an interesting line we have to figure out where it's like, how much do you need to know versus um, how much do you just keep going because you're in a new place to begin with, you know? So I think in that way, the use of the books um, might... I don't know if it'll fade, but I think, you know, it'll, it'll be different over time because some, some children growing up right now who are growing up with, I think, a very open mindset and compassionate hearts and some level of awareness or modeling, I think those books would be different for them. They wouldn't need them for the same reason. It's interesting because there, like you said, there are, there have been books around for decades that deal with this, these topics, these stories. But I think um, depending on who you are and what your own experiences are, you know, you bring to every book, you get from every book what you need out of it. I learned more about some historical people like Ruby Bridges and some people who have escaped slavery. I learned more about sit-ins and how it was so, with many O's, unfair back then. I learned a lot from reading those books, especially how it was very cruel back then. It was especially hard for someone to speak up and say that those laws weren't right. Hi, let's take a quick break. This is Lina, the host of this podcast. Mixtapes from America is a podcast which mostly highlights minor moments in the lives of migrants, but more generally, its objective is to use sounds and stories in order to make sense of life in the U.S. by especially highlighting voices from historically underrepresented groups. And you know what is awesome and what inspires me to keep working on this project? You. Yes, you. I appreciate everyone who has listened to Mixtape so far. I've hit over a hundred plays this week and it is a big deal for me. You know, it is so striking to see that podcasts as a rather niche media landscape are so dominated by voices of white men. So my podcast is meant as a bit of a break from that. Meanwhile, here's what I want to ask from you, especially if you are listening to Mixtapes from America on Apple. If you like what you are hearing, please leave a review. It doesn't need to be very long, but it will help this podcast get more traction. You can also find this podcast on Spotify, Pocket Casts, and Anchor. If you are interested in supporting this podcast, these opportunities are coming up. And now, back to the episode. Daughters of the traditional South. <laughs> Those bigots and bonnets are staying in this hotel. There is a clip from one TV show from the 1990s, and it is a telling example of the burden of unlearning. In this fragment from a 1992 TV show, the Golden Palace, by the way, a spin-off of the more famous Golden Girls, we are in the reception area of a hotel. We see Blanche, who is an operator of a hotel. 
A group of women from the southern states decide to stay at the hotel, and Blanche greets them with mm -hmm, a Confederate flag hung at the reception. And then we watch Blanche talking to Roland, the hotel's manager, played by Don Cheadle. Shortly after the flag appears in the hotel, he quits because he does not want to work for a racist boss. This flag, Mrs. Devereaux, is not about college football games or, or quilting bees or fried chicken on Sunday. It's about colleges that won't let me in. It's about companies that won't hire me. It is about crosses being burnt on people's lawns today, not in the evil past, Blanche, today, and not just in the South. Back to Blanche. She says that she thinks about business and the flag is not such a big deal merely a family memorabilia. It reminds her of family and picnics, and she realizes that acknowledgement of her country's racism in objects like the Confederate flag will mean that she will have to utterly rethink how she understands her country, her family, and even herself. Everything I grew up believing in, all my wonderful memories, that they're all tarnished now by... The confession of Blanche, a fictional woman in her 50s, might sound truly heartbreaking. Until you listen to some of the stories from an elementary school in New York, where nine-year-olds, ten-year-olds encounter the topic of race. When I taught fourth grade, fourth graders in New York State are asked to take this test called the OLSAT test. It's basically like an IQ test, okay? Fourth graders have been taking it for years and years and years and years. Um, and it comes with a bubble sheet, a very standard bubble sheet where the kids for the first time are being asked to um, bubble in the letters of their name and their birthday and like little pieces of information. And one of the boxes is a race box. And it's the same list we usually get on any form we fill in as adults. Are you white? You know, are you Hawaiian? <laughs> are you African? Are you Middle Eastern? I forget what the actual categories are, right? But there are very few categories. I had some families where um, the parents had grown up in Middle Eastern countries. That was a year I had students from Lithuania, students who were Korean, students whose families were Pakistani. It was such an amazing class, but we get to this form and the kids are trying to fill it out on their own at their desks. And the kids, again, start talking about that box. You know, what do I fill in? You know, my Korean student is like, am I Asian? <laughs> and one of my other girls comes up to me. She holds her hand up in front of my face and says, what am I? And I will never forget that moment. I love this kid so much. I'm still in touch with her family, but her coming up to me, holding her hand up going, what am I? Again, expecting an answer from me. And I happen to know because of my own education that I am not going to other her in this moment, right? I am not going to choose her race for her in this moment at all. I really truly feel like most teachers would have probably told her what to bubble in and just done it. I said, "Hun, I'm so sorry. I need you to pick something that you're comfortable with. You can talk to your friends about it if you want. And I said, and if you're not sure, leave it blank because it is not my choice. 
It was my first year teaching fourth grade, having that experience. I immediately followed up that night by looking up a couple articles about othering, which is a commonly, you know, among some people, it's a commonly known um, thing, right, in the world, being othered. I sent, I sent them as attachments to my administrators, along with the story of what had happened that day. And I also sent an email to parents that night because I did have a very ethnically diverse class. I sent the parents an email that night saying, this is an experience that happened today. Your child will probably need to be filling in more forms and paperwork like this as they grow up. I don't want to make this choice for your child. So, you know, please talk to them about um, this type of thing so that they feel empowered and know what to do. There are so many little moments within, you know, what happens in a public school system where we can accidentally perpetuate the problems that exist. And that's really unfortunate. One time we were doing in third grade, we were actually doing a unit on Cinderella stories from around the world, which, you know, is was one of my more favorite um, topics to cover. It's actually like in the standards for people to cover fairy tale stories. And there are Cinderella stories from pretty much every country in the world. It's very interesting, even from an adult perspective to like study this stuff. And, you know, at some point within that unit, we were having all sorts of interesting discussions and the kids, I don't know. What I remember is we were sitting on the rug near my materials for that particular unit. And the kids started talking about the idea of race because they also don't even know what race is usually as a seven or eight year old that's something that they just haven't needed to know for many kids now even though i'm working in an affluent suburban district i do have kids of many ethnicities in my classroom they mostly still happen to be you know wealthier kids of different ethnicities but sitting in front of me I have a variety of skin tones, families, parents who've grown up in other countries. So diversity can play out in many different ways. Kid, the kids started talking about race and um, one kid said to another, well, what are you? And the particular child that was being questioned, I happened to know one of his parents was white, one of his parents was black. And he didn't know how to answer. I just remember feeling like, oh my goodness, you know, what is he going to say? Is this going to upset him? You know, what should I say? I mean, it's not my question to answer. So I did not answer for him. He explained, you know, well, you know, my mom is white, my dad is black. And that was good enough for the children that were sitting at that rug with him that were his friends. And we moved on, but that moment for me was like what you're talking about, one of those moments where I didn't shush the class. I didn't yell at the student who asked that question, right? There's a lot of things I can imagine other teachers might do or other adults might do, like literally silence that moment and say that that's not appropriate, right? Um, shut down the questioner, shut down the class, prevent the child from answering, answer for the child. There are so many things that could have gone differently, but leaving that in the hands of the children, it's something that kind of played out. And then within seconds, they were ready to move on from it. As a teacher, what I did was later in the day, 
um, after the students had gone home or maybe they were at PE class or something, I emailed that student's parents saying, I just want you to know that this conversation happened in our classroom today and this is how your son handled it. And um, I just want you to be aware that that's something that happened. I am literally reporting an incident to families in the hopes that, you know, they can support their child if their child comes home with the same story or a lot of kids go home and are much more emotional at home about things than they are at school. And I remember those parents responding and saying, thank you so much. Um, we are quite aware this comes up for our family, obviously. And thank you for letting us know, you know, we already talk about it. We'll continue to talk about it. So I think it is, it does come back to like, you know, allowing conversations to happen and respectfully listening to each other. When I've taught third and fourth and fifth grade, which have been the grades that I've primarily taught for the past few years, we are at a um, place where we're teaching children those words. We're teaching children the word racism and the word sexism, which gets a, quite a lot of giggles and stuff from fourth and fifth graders. They've never heard these words before a lot of them. Maybe a couple of kids from home experience, life experience, or kids who happen to be your strongest readers or something through giving them stories or news articles or whatever, then laying the groundwork for it and saying, this is what people refer to, this is what people are talking about when they use the word racism. So it's really interesting because you might be the first person to ever introduce them to that word. And they'll come at it with all of the emotions you wish they would come at it with. You know, the, the sense of injustice and the sense of concern and the passion little kids can have for something when they first learn about it. I've always been the kind of teacher who is not I do not have strict rules about students raising their hands and only speaking when I call on them. I really believe and have seen at work that if I allow the class to discuss things on their own, like a like a like if you had a group of friends over your house, you know, there's a natural rhythm to having a group discussion and children are capable of achieving that too. Um, especially with some guidance. So because I have classrooms where they're allowed to speak up and they're not going to be punished for speaking up or speak, there is no speaking out of turn. They can speak if they have something to say. The, what I might do is say, hold on one voice at a time. We want to make sure we hear everyone's ideas just so that you know they are allowed a moment. So here's the catch. American teachers do not need to aspire to have rich and nuanced conversations with students about complicated topics like race. Standard testing has been the engine of K-12 education for the past decade. Mary says that it is especially important in New York and many parents are fixated on their children's success at standardized testing. School activities are narrowed down to very specific skill sets, and this obviously reduces the amount of time teachers could give for rich conversations about larger social issues and their educational benefits. And yet Mary says that in-depth conversations about complex issues like race are not only possible, but also necessary, because this is what Common Core State Standards for ELA are about. 
learning environments in which students should be encouraged to use critical thinking and writing to connect what they learn with real-life experiences. To achieve this, access to more resources might not be the main issue. Changes in the curriculum and the ability for teachers to shift from the focus on standardized tests might be more important. Um, almost with anything you're teaching, you know, you could be teaching a math lesson and you could tie it into, you know, which mathematicians over the years got credit for different things, right? Like you could bring that up, but you need to have an awareness and you need to be able to take the time to, you know, research that information on your own or bring it up. Um, I know there's also been a huge movement for community circles and like class meetings. So two or three times a week and sometimes on a daily basis, classrooms now are holding class meetings, which is to promote social emotional growth and community building in a classroom. Um, and sometimes during those meetings, kids might share something that, they, uh, that happened to them over the weekend or something that they're thinking about or some feelings they have related to their family or life outside of school. Um, and I think the key is that, you know, for me, when I overhear a student mention something whether it's curriculum related or life related, I allow them to talk about it and I allow the other kids to react to it. And every once in a while when there isn't a reaction, but I feel like it might be important, I might come back and say, can you tell us, can you tell us more about that and how that felt? I'm allowing them time to talk about their own reactions and pushing them and asking them to react a bit more, you know? Ironically, this is what Common Core ELA standards are all about. Like the level of thinking and writing that we want children to be doing, even at the elementary stage, is all about deeper reflection and connection. But I think we keep it, we don't even realize, but we're keeping it very surface level sometimes. The more we can allow kids to talk about tougher issues and, you know, real issues, the more they can bring to literature and articles they read and nonfiction work they're doing. So I feel like for me, it's not just important because of the world <laughs> and because these kids are the future, but it's important because it's actually the work we're supposed to be doing is allowing kids to do this type of thinking and talking and reacting to each other. I don't think we need more resources. I don't think we need to dump money into any more resources. I'm a very, um, I don't know, I'm a very kind of bare bones, simplistic kind of teacher. I feel like if you have some, some books and the, the ability to have discussions or, um, you know, pencil and paper even, there is so much we could get done, especially at the elementary level. Sometimes I just feel like um, it's about the people, it's not about the stuff. But even though I'm in a suburban school, I don't have like a surplus of uh, materials. When I had experience working in our city schools where, you know, it was a very different situation from the home life of the student and the school life I had where there was no librarian. It was art on a cart, as they call it, where the art teacher comes to your room with a cart full of supplies and that's, you know, you're not going to an art classroom. And I think sometimes people want, especially teachers and parents, they want to give kids more stuff because I think that giving more stuff feels like more love, more attention. Um, 
they don't need that. You know, they don't need the stuff. They need your time. They need your attention and your like your interest and they need discussion and they need activity. A lot of those things can be provided if they have a safe space to be in and a safe space doesn't mean that you have the fanciest of tools and materials. I think that there could be creativity shown as far as um, the way we schedule school days and school time in the future. You know, when a principal gives you permission to spend 30 minutes every day having a community discussion, that is huge. You are granted permission to put time and effort towards that. But if you're not comfortable having that discussion and leading that discussion, you're going to avoid doing it. Um, so that comes back to being trained and having practice and having experience, having discussions. You know, it would be very radical to say, students are in school Monday through Thursday, but Fridays are for teacher training, right? Like in some places that's already normal. If you travel, right, if you start looking at the schedules of how schools work in other countries around the world, it's very different in ways that we do not realize. Um, I only know little bits and pieces of it, but I know in many European countries, students stay with the same teacher between the grades one through five, right? Students might have the same teacher for four or five years. Can you imagine how different it would be to know a child for four or five years and talk to them about all sorts of things versus a kid that you see in for you know 40 minutes a day as a middle school or a high school teacher there are places in the world where children only go to school for four hours every morning and the afternoons are for teachers to do their work and to train and to collaborate i think changes like that are possible are all teachers equipped to handle complicated identity and social topics according to mary some teachers are particularly qualified to do that creatively and critically, but many educators do not have this experience. Teachers are mostly, you know, white, middle-class, upper-class, older women who I'm very sure have never had to navigate discussions around their own race, their own identity. Um, and so it's just, they don't have the practice. It's not that they couldn't do it. It's not that they don't want to do it, but they don't have the practice that some other people have around it. As a gay teacher, I think that I've also talked to other gay educators where we feel like we are used to having certain discussions in our lives all the time as gay citizens um, about the way we live. I don't know, you know, all the normal things that we have to talk about, we have to defend and we have to deal with. So we have this like comfort level with navigating some of these conversations to some degree. I think I have been pushed to be conservative sometimes by the district and administration, but in reality, parents and families have always been grateful and appreciative. I think that families out there are a lot less conservative than we imagine them to be somehow. They want you to have these discussions. These parents are out there in the workplace, <laughs> you know, living their own lives, dealing with the same issues. So I think usually they are very grateful, despite, you know, the fact that um, you might get criticized for other things. When you do have conversations around social justices or diversity or inclusion or something, I've really, I think almost always, knock on wood, <laughs> had parents writing in saying, 
um, thank you for doing that. Thank you for taking the time to do that. Thank you for covering these issues. Um, thank you for letting the kids talk about it. By the way, some of you may not know that in 1953, President Eisenhower issued the infamous executive order 10450. It banned the so-called sexual perverts from serving as federal employees. The order was part of the Red Scare, which fused many of America's Cold War phobias. One of the outcomes of this executive order was that, at public schools, a witch hunt began to ensure that gay teachers do not interact with children. By the way, until last month's Supreme Court ruling on the protection of LGBTQ workers, in half of the states, gay teachers like Mary had no legal protection against workplace discrimination. So what does the future hold for education in the age of Black Lives Matter? At this point, it is already clear that the pandemic will have an enormous impact on public education. And even prior to this year's economic dip, public education has consistently battled defunding. The 2008 recession and subsequent state tax cuts worsened what already was a profound inequity between wealthier and the less wealthy school districts. Arizona and Colorado facing waging vocal battles for better pay and increased school funding. Here's ABC Zachary Keish. It was never just about giving teachers a raise. It's really about the fact that I only have 29 textbooks for a group of kids of 87, and I wish I was excited. And better staffing. I have 30 students in my classroom. Half first grade and half second grade. We want the schools for social workers. We want nurses. We need clinicians. Over the past few years, teachers' strikes have taken place in Arizona, California, Colorado, Georgia, Kentucky, North Carolina, Oklahoma, South Carolina, Tennessee, and Virginia. Look at the U.S. map and you will notice that many of the states are the same ones in which pro-lifers thrive but students do not have books. These are the same states which severely cut their taxes. The area where Mary lives and works in New York State is not much better. Even before the pandemic, the city of Rochester has consistently made it to the list of the poorest cities of its size in the country. The area's school districts demonstrate severe economic segregation. In fact, some of the worst in the country. This academic year, students in Rochester City School District will see five elementary schools shut. Over 300 teaching and staffing positions will be cut to compensate for budget cuts. Last year, over 150 teaching and staffing positions were cut in the same school district, which is also the district in which over half of students are black and almost a third are Hispanic. And you know what? The most heartbreaking part of ongoing public education defunding in the U.S. and the current push to cast doubt on the long-term value of quality education is this. All of this is happening as American K-12 schools are becoming more diverse than they have ever been. While the percentage of black students has remained rather consistent, the number of Hispanic students has doubled over the past two decades. America's changing demographic is definitely pushing teachers to adequately account for it in their classrooms. 
Yet students might be the least of teachers' concerns as educators navigate the demands of the group, which takes up most of their time. Parents. Childcare. We are really seen as the childcare system in America. And that is a huge part of the problem because if we need teachers to do certain types of work without the children present, well, that creates a problem for most American families, right? Like, what do you do with your kids? I think it's completely unfair that in a, you know, especially in New York State, I have a job that requires a master's degree, right? Which requires me to have a lot of student loans. <laughs> I mean, I have a very, you know, high level of education. It's a profession. And I also love caring for children, but I can't do my job to the best of my ability and be considered a childcare worker. It's, a, it's two different jobs. I've had parents say to me, I need you to provide my child with more social opportunities because they don't have enough friends. I've had parents say to me, you need to, you know, turn on a passion for him to be interested in learning. You know, I'm, I'm responsible for them to feel passionate about learning, for them to have enough friends to make play dates with, for them to make sure that they're not sitting near a food they're allergic to, um, for them to make sure that they're actually going to the bathroom during the day, for you know, observing the fact that, well, last night they threw up and they had a fever, but they seemed fine this morning. Can you keep an eye on him? We live in a constant state of paranoia over how our parents and our families of our kids will react to everything from, we know they're gonna complain about the way we're teaching this math lesson, to they're gonna complain that we didn't allow their child to um, do something during snack time. <laughs> um, there, you know, every facet of the day in an elementary setting, what, because you're spending so many hours with the same kids all day long, you're spending snack time with them, you're giving them social time, you're overhearing their social conversations, you're asking them to wear a coat outside during winter if they're lucky enough to have recess those all become things that parents can complain about and still want control over. You know, it's definitely a really significant layer of the work when you're an elementary teacher with regards to homework, you know? And it's like, again, like everything else in life, no one, or um, you can't make everyone happy, you know? Currently, schools and colleges across the U.S. are struggling to figure out their fall plans. Some authors suggest that the pandemic will open up the gate for private tech companies to take over education from the public sphere. Interestingly, Mary does not sound like she's preparing for a dystopia. When I traveled in Italy in the past few years and I met people who were pouring coffee and working at these tiny little shops in these beautiful little hillside towns, you'd talk to them and you'd realize, why is your English, you'd say, why is your, you know, how is your English so great? Where did you learn to speak English? Oh, I lived in New York for four years and I have a degree in like, you know, bioengineering, but I chose to come back here because this is the life that makes me happy. You know, people around the world sometimes pursue education because they find it fascinating and wonderful, not because they want to make a million dollars. We, we still haven't exactly decided what education is for in America. And I don't know, I don't know if America is too big of a place for us all to agree on that. <laughs> You are listening to Mixtapes from America. You will find references and links to media resources mentioned in this episode in the description. 
The music in this episode was by Loyalty Free Music, and the piece is called Summer Pride, courtesy of the Free Music Archive and licensed under the Creative Commons license. Sound effects were from the freesound.org. <laughs>